Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I'm speaking with Dan Mattingly about his latest book published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. It is The Art of Political Control in China. Dan Mattingly is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Yale University. His research focuses on the politics of authoritarian regimes, historical political economy, and China. His book that we're discussing today, The Art of Political Control in China, was named as one of the best books of 2020 by foreign affairs magazines. Daniel Mattingly, welcome to the show. Jane, thank you so much for having me on. It's our pleasure. Now, just to get us started, I'm wondering if you can tell me how you came to write The Art of Political Control in China. Absolutely. So The Art of Political Control in China is a book that It started as a dissertation for which I did over a year of on-the-ground field research in China, interviewing people, doing surveys. But to understand how I came to ask the central question of the book, which is really the question of how do states control society? And all states, to one degree or another, want to control society to implement policy, to implement laws, to get revenue and tax money from people. Uh, You have to go, I think, a little bit further back in my personal history to the first time I lived in China, which was 2004 to 2006, when I was a teacher in Hunan province in China. I went with uh, some of my colleagues on this really amazing boat cruise down the Yangtze River from Chongqing to Wuhan. And this was in the middle of the Three Gorges Dam filling up, right? So as we were going down this river, uh, you would see these really kind of striking visual reminders of just how effective, strong, powerful, and able to control society the Chinese state is. So you go down, we were going down the river at this period, and we would see all these towns that had been completely abandoned and evacuated, these ghost towns, uh, for the creation of the Three Gorges Dam. Uh, And, you know, I think there's uh, sort of you know, amazing facet of the Chinese state. You think about the ability of the state to move you know, millions of people off their land for this big project like the Three Gorges Dam uh, and was something that kind of intrigues me. You know, I think there's maybe from a normative perspective, from an environmental perspective, uh, there are ways to c- critique these big state-run development projects like the Three Gorges Dam or you know, urbanization projects. But at the same time, it's fascinating and astounding, I think, that the Chinese state, especially relative to other developing states, has been able to do implement things like the Three Gorges Dam. So you can, you know, you're able to go down the, the Yangtze River and see, uh, you know, at least in this period of time, 2005, 2006, see all these these ghost towns, millions of people moved off their land. So that was the kind of partially the the deep history, the emphasis, the impetus for uh, for writing this book was just being intrigued by how is it that the Chinese state is so 
effective and able to control society in the way that a lot of developing states are not. That's really interesting. And I do think that comes through in the book. Um, I guess it really, it relates to it. So it could, because you open the book with a quote from Sun Yat-sen. Now he was the first president of the Republic of China in 1911 after the revolution, which overthrew the last of the Chinese dynasties, which was the Qing dynasty. He also later became the leader of the Guomindang, which was the China's nationalist party, party during that era. Era. So your opening quote of the book from Dr. Sun in 1924 is that he says, how can a government be made all-powerful? Once the government is all-powerful, how can it be made responsive to the will of the people? Now, I think this applies to the example that you just gave us and also really well to the hypothesis of your book. Can you explain how you think the art of political control has helped to make the government of China all-powerful and also how this all-powerful government can be made responsive either because of or despite this political control? Well, that's a really important question, right? It's this sort of central dilemma for all governments. Uh, and you know, before Sun Yat-sen said that in 1924, the, one of the founding fathers of the United States, James Madison, said something similar about you know, in framing a government, the great difficulty li- it lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the government and then in the next place oblige it, the government, to control itself. So this kind of paradox is, I think, central to all governments, not just the Chinese government. But from the perspective of someone like Sun Yat-sen writing uh, just after the fall of the Qing dynasty in the context of you know China that had been pushed around by foreign powers and a government under the Qing and then under uh, ultimately under the nationalists as well that weren't that wasn't that effective you know you need you do first need a government that's able to implement policies and get things done and uh, and and move the country forward and then of course the next uh, the next challenge is how can you also make that government responsible to itself not corrupt not uh, not predatory so the answer that I have in this book is really focuses on mostly on this first question of how do you create a government that's really effective and able to control uh, the population that it governs? And I think the key to understanding this is it's not all about coercion. So I think that especially in uh, the West, there's this idea about authoritarian governments that they rule mostly through coercion. It's things like the secret police, surveillance systems, censorship, automated facial recognition technology, that sort of really coercive tools of governance are how authoritarian governments ensure compliance from the people they govern, ensure that people, you know, don't protest against the state, pay their taxes on time, and act in the way they're supposed to. What I argue in the book instead is that it's, uh, the authoritarian states often rely on society to police and control itself in ways that aren't as immediately coercive or obviously coercive or violent as I think the picture that a lot of people have, especially in the West and Western democracies of how authoritarian governments govern. Uh, And so in the book, I talk about three different strategies that authoritarian states use to try to control society. Uh, The first is to cultivate and subvert civil society organizations, uh, you know, organizations outside of the state, outside of the family and firms that are actually useful for authoritarian governments to monitor society, control society, and promulgate values that are useful for ensuring compliance. Uh, Authoritarian states also often co-opt as a second strategy, 
uh, influential social leaders who, especially at the local level, at the grassroots level, can be very helpful for states to ensure compliance with what states want, whether that's not protesting or uh, some kind of revenue extraction. And then the third strategy I talk about is infiltration. I think this is something that of the three strategies I talk about, this is what's gotten the most press in the last three years in the West, which is this idea that uh, Leninist political systems, or kind of quasi-Leninist political systems like uh, the Chinese Communist Party's political system, invests also a lot in creating parastate organizations, whether it's Communist Party cells or neighborhood committees that penetrate down to the grassroots and are useful for monitoring and controlling society. So it's those three strategies, to come back to your original question, uh, that are the key to understanding how the state controls society. Subverting civil society, co-opting civil society social leaders, and infiltrating society. This question of how you get responsibility, on the other hand, uh, I argue comes mostly from being able to sort of free uh, yourself from the state-controlled organizations. So it's actually surprising that the places that have the least robust social organizations in some contexts, especially in places like rural China, that are most able to act spontaneously and uh, to resist the state at the local level. That's really interesting. As you say, um, you know, there is this conception, especially from Western liberal democratic ideals that, you know, this coercion is sort of more repressive and it's not, um, it's, it's not these systems of informal control. Um, so you do, one of your key findings in your research, you write that the presence of civil society groups helps officials in rural China tamp down on protests, requisition land and enforce mandatory birth quotas. In short, local civil society groups in China help strengthen state capacity and serve hidden tools of informal control. And I, I mean, when I was reading your book, I was really surprised um, because I sort of would have assumed that the opposite is true. Certainly, like, you know, um, before I came to your book, I did play into that sort of typical Western liberal mindset, I guess. Um, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, I think, well, I, I, I mean, I think that there's, there's a good reason for that, which is that, hmm. you know, what we would think of as civil society looks quite different in a liberal democracy uh, than it does in an authoritarian state like China. So the same kinds of civic social organizations, whether it's uh, purely social organizations like, you know, birdwashing clubs, dance troops, uh, soccer clubs, or uh, whether it's, uh, you know, more um, uh, uh, kind of adversarial groups like NGOs or even NGOs that are designed to provide social services. I mean, in the West, these kinds of groups can actually be used to create social capital that bonds people together and that can then ultimately be used for political organization of different kinds. That vision of what social organizations do in Western democracies really doesn't fit or make any sense if you try to import that into an authoritarian context like mainland China today, where these social organizations, to the extent that they exist, exist because the party, Communist Party, and the state allow them to exist, which means they've often served some sort of useful purpose for for the state. So this idea that I think a lot of Westerners have, you know, which in the United States maybe comes from the work of Alexis de Tocqueville writing about how these civic organizations at the local level in the United States create habits of the heart that um, that help to 
uh, strengthen democracy at the local level uh, don't really make sense in authoritarian contexts like China. So then I guess my next question is, who are the civil society groups that you focus on in the book? So the book is mostly about rural China. So I did field research largely in rural China in a set of, so the, the book has a bunch of essentially case studies of uh, villages in China. So I'm looking mostly at kind of village level society, which means that I'm looking at a set of pretty social groups that are kind of specific to villages, uh, things like lineage associations. These are kinship associations, extended networks, uh, when in some contexts are called clans, um, although there's, if you want to get deep into it in the anthropological literature in China, there's a distinction made between lineages and clans. But the thing here to know is that these are extended net, kinship networks that have often associations at the village level. I also look at, uh, temple organizations, especially folk religious temple organizations, uh, which are common, especially in, uh, parts of Southern coastal China, although they exist in many other places in China. I also, uh, look at things like uh, music groups and and uh, local festival associations, which are maybe closer to the kinds of civic associations that uh, Westerners uh, and and many listeners might be familiar with. And I also look at uh, parastate organizations. So I specifically look at what what are called villager small groups, which are groups of often you know a few dozen households uh, that are grouped together in a village that often have a small group leader who's kind of like the local neighborhood watch leader who's responsible uh, for helping to promulgate and enforce uh, policy at the local, who's, you know, helps the village committee and the village party secretary to roll up, uh, to roll up policy. So these are all kind of, I think, from a certain perspective, organizations that you don't see elsewhere. You don't see in urban China and you don't see outside of China. But I do think that there's a kind of core here uh, that does travel, uh, I think, beyond rural China to how these organizations work, even if the specific social forms are specific to rural China. I think in the big picture, they look a lot like civic groups elsewhere. So in the book, you know, I kind of try to draw in examples that at least are fun for me to write and write about of, of other kinds of social groups, whether it's thinking about the role of uh, or the Orthodox Church in Russia or civic groups in uh, the United States or uh, clans in uh, Scotland. Uh, I do try to uh, help readers understand how these how these findings might travel. Hmm. And that's really interesting. Um, so then you've touched on this already. You talked about subversion, co-optation and infiltration. But then can you expand a little bit more on how autocracies, and especially in China, use these groups to subject citizens to coercive controls and what the ultimate political outcome is? Yeah, so the book really focuses on explaining three things about what the Chinese Communist Party is doing in rural China. And, and these are the kind of key outcomes, in a sense, that the party cares about in, uh, in rural China um, in terms of governance outcomes, setting aside poverty alleviation, which is one of the most, you know, which is one of the important outcomes in terms of what the state wants from society, partly it's, you know, first, uh, political control, lack of, uh, you know, ensuring uh, there, there isn't protest, uh, land requisitions. So I, in, in order to understand how urbanization and development happens in China, it all usually involves, uh, especially 
in the early 2010s, huge amounts of uh, land requisitions were land from uh, farmers was requisitioned by the state and then converted to you know, urban or industrial use. Farmers, in some cases, especially if they live near big cities, got pretty good compensation. But in parts of more rural China, we're actually often, as I show in the book, getting pretty bad compensation. Um, nowhere near what the land was worth, and we're on balance unhappy with it. And the third policy I look at is family planning policy. Uh, you know, what used to be called the one-child policy, obviously that has changed as uh, China's demographics have changed, but, you know, it, it, in the past, uh, the, the one-child policy was one of the, the key policy outcomes that the state cared about in rural China and, uh, until about uh, five years ago. Um, and so the question is, how can the state control society and do things like requisition land, the most valuable asset that most farmers ha- have, uh, and do things like enforce the one-child policy, which in rural China was relatively unpopular, you know, more popular in urban China, but was relatively unpopular in rural China. And do those two things without encountering large amounts of protest. So what I argue in the book is that these local social groups are quite useful for the state for enforcing these policies without running into protests and without using violence and coercion to get people to do what they want. So to give you an example, you know, talk about uh, the current paramount leader of China, the uh, general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping. Uh, right? Xi Jinping uh, today is at the apex of power in China. But he started off his career as uh, a teenager, as a sent-down youth during the Cultural Revolution, uh, when he was sent down to a village, and he eventually became the party secretary of uh, of this uh, village during the Cultural Revolution. And you know, he wanted to make his mark on the village. So the first project that he wanted to do was to build this big dam in this village, uh, which you know, potentially benefit villagers by, you know, making irrigation easier. Uh, and he wanted to roll out this plan, but he quickly ran into a problem, which was that the, in order to build a dam, uh, it would uh, involve uh, having to uh, dam up land that was a cemetery for the dominant lineage group in the village. So, so you know, lineage groups, again, are these extended chip networks in this village of Liangjiaho, which is where Xi Jinping was sent lineage ties were very strong, very important. Um, so how was Xi Jinping, uh, what, you know, what, what was the strategy that he used then to try to get this lineage group to give up its land? Well, he actually found these lineage group ties to be quite useful because what he could do was instead of Xi Jinping himself having to go and, you know, as this, uh, as this teenager, try to convince these older uh, villagers who'd been there their whole lives to try to move off their land, the fact that there were these strong lineage ties and lineage associations meant that he could go to these to the lineage elders uh, and ask the lineage elders to persuade other members of their lineage, you know, specifically this holdout family, to move off their land. Uh, so that's what Xi Jinping did. He went to the lineage elders, and the lineage elders kind of twisted arms until uh, they got this one holdout family to uh, to to move off their land. They were able to then. Uh, to then build a dam. So this is Xi Jinping at the very beginning of his career, understanding how to operate the levers of power, uh, and uh, and and you know understanding at a very kind of micro level, at the village level, the community level, 
how, how to get things done. And it was important for him to be able to work through these social groups uh, in order to ensure compliance and uh, you know, Communist Party control in uh, this village. And so the book, you know, this is one example as well, you know, of the most famous person uh, alive today in China um, using, you know, using these tactics, but um, looking across a broader set of villages, I agree that, you know, it's often things like these lineage associations or, you know, dance groups or, uh, or what have you that are useful for political leaders uh, for uh, doing a couple of things, you know, one, identifying who is unhappy and who needs uh, sort of political work done on them. And two, in, in a kind of uh, non-coercive or non-violent way, uh, trying to persuade them to go along with what the state wants, whether that's, you know, giving up that parcel of land for a development project for a dam, or whether it's uh, you know, complying with the one-child policy. Mm. And so I guess my next question is, applying this sort of experience of Xi Jinping more broadly, from what your findings, um, how do you think that civil society can be cultivated to encourage deference to the state? Yeah, so to a certain extent, you know, the, the relationship between these groups and the state is somewhat, you know, symbiotic or or mutual. And it can be it can be delicate, especially given the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party, to uh, to try to actively you know, cultivate local civil society. So there's specific barriers for Communist Party leaders in rural China when it comes to cultivating certain types of groups. So if it's a, something like a lineage association or a temple association, you know, the uh, you know charter, the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, forbids, restricts, discourages party leaders from uh, participating in some of these organizations or you know, donating to some of these organizations or trying to directly cultivate them. Uh, so, you know, uh, so this means that in you know, some cases, uh, when it comes to these groups that are under sort of official party ideology discouraged, it means that uh, local leaders have to be careful not to themselves directly cultivate it, but sometimes uh, can either you know take advantage of the fact of number one that someone else, like a kind of local, you get to go on this kind of social entrepreneur in the village has already done something like try to revive the village uh, lineage association, a kinship leader, a kinship association. You know that's one tactic is just to sort of allow something that's naturally happening anyway to happen, uh, to support it, to not tamp down and prevent it because these organizations are often useful. The other strategy is, you know, to kind of more directly themselves try to cultivate something. And when it comes to things like lineage and temple associations where they maybe can't directly participate themselves, you can still work through people often, you know, work through their families, their wives, sons, daughters, cousins, uh, to, you know, try to indirect, more indirectly uh, cultivate these, uh, these civil society groups. So, you know, one way you can do this at the local level is, uh, we, you know, when I was actually doing field work, you could go and look at, uh, go inside these uh, lineage associations, these really beautiful ancestral halls. Um, and uh, with you know, many of them with these kind of fantastic, colorful uh, murals, um, you can really understand why these places have, you know, meaning to people and to their families and places. You know, so these are things that people are you know, justly proud of. And um, but you can go and then see on the wall these roles of donors to these organizations. Um, 
and often it's it's not that hard to figure out um you know who uh you know whether you know the village party secretary or members of the village party secretary's family have donated to it and often their their names are kind of at the head of these uh roles of of people donated and they've often you know their families have often donated the most um in a way that encourages and cultivates their own social prestige which is useful right? if you want to enforce policy it helps to be uh to not just rule with an iron fist but with a velvet glove to to uh, to have the social prestige that comes from being seen as a good citizen who's trying to cultivate social organizations in the village. So it's not an insidious, it's not an insidious tactic, but it's certainly a useful tactic for officials who want or who are attempting to uh, cultivate political control. And I mean, one of the examples that you use in the book where it really isn't insidious at all, you talk about the um, you talk about norm creation via informal civil society networks. And you you mentioned before the case studies that you've done. So two of them, um, one's from Guangdong and the other one is in Anhui. So I'm wondering if you can just elaborate a little bit more on these case studies and tell us what they demonstrate with regard to this coercive control and norm creation in this way. Absolutely. Um, so the you know so I so I did a fair amount of field work in 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 Guangdong, both uh, near Guangzhou, and a little bit of field work in um, in eastern uh, in east, eastern Guangdong. Um, and so one of the cases I talk about in this chapter um, is the case of Yang Village, where uh, the Chinese Communist Party secretary um, and the village leadership did things like promoting cultural associations, you know, ping pong club, singing troops, traditional music groups, even a dragon boat racing team. Um, and these were immensely popular in the village. I right? think that that brought uh, Leo and you know, the members of his family a fair amount of prestige and increased their popularity in the village. And so these are right. No, by no means like bad, uh, bad things. So I think, you know, when talking about the term political control here, it's, I mean, it's, it's, I hope a sort of, and in some sense, it's kind of neutral term. I mean, I think that they, you know, you can make normative judgments about the ways in which people exercise a political control. Um, but these bonds were also useful for Leo to, uh, implement policy, including things like, uh, like land requisitions, uh, which was a priority of, um, of the local governments. Um, and so when he was doing this, uh, the, uh, village government, uh, uh, you know, wanted to redevelop the village land, which would involve essentially moving everybody out of their houses, um, and building a set of apartment buildings, high rise buildings there, uh, and some people thought this was a good idea, thought the compensation was fine, but there were a lot of holdouts. There were hundreds of holdouts who didn't want to move, who didn't think the compensation was good enough. Um, and it was, you know, I mean, like looking at the compensation, um, it was, uh, you know, certainly the, the village was going to get more money than the villagers were being compensated. The compensation was, it's not like they could, someone could live off the compensation necessarily for the rest of their life. You know, but people were, uh, but... Uh, you know, some people liked it, some people didn't. So how do they move people off? Um, well, one thing that they tried was postering the village with these posters that um, really explicitly tried to call call on the norms of filial piety that uh, these lineage associations uh, 
that Leo and his family had created, cultivated. Uh, so one of the posters said, you know, fighting the relocation compensation shows a lack of filial piety and a hard heart. Um, and, you know, another one of them tried to call him the norms created, uh, again, by these lineage associations of respect for elders, saying, you know, refuse relocation and be censured by the elders, shirk responsibility and people, people point, um, show respect and filial piety, move early for a better environment. So we're very explicitly calling on these uh, norms created by lineage groups in order to try to get people to move off uh, their land, which I thought was just kind of uh, fascinating. And I don't know how effective these particular posters were in getting people to sign the papers to move off their land. Um, but clearly, uh, Leo and his family thought that they were they were pretty effective. Um, yeah, the other case you mentioned, which I assume is, is, is Xiaogang Village, I so it's actually not in in Anhui. There's a very oh, famous village called no, no. There's a very famous village called Xiaogang Village in Hanway. I don't oh, know why. So, so I renamed all the villages for this book in order to preserve the anonymity of the respondents who talked to me. I don't know why. Like I picked Xiaogang because it was a famous village, but you like you found this secret. Yeah, I don't I know. It's like, <laughs> Sorry. It's like, a, it's like an Easter egg in this book for people who really care about rural China. Uh, but it's not the Xiaogang village. It's another village um, with a name that was actually, well, anyway, it's close enough to Xiaogang. I thought it'd be fun to name it Xiaogang, but, uh, but I guess it's misled somebody who knows a lot about China. Um yeah, in this case, it was kind of a similar story to the story of, of, of you know, Xi Jinping uh, trying to build the dam, which was that uh, this village of Xiaogang, you know, they wanted to upgrade their, it's actually in, in Henan province, not on Anhui. Um, they wanted to upgrade their electrical system. They wanted people, uh, they wanted this farmer to move off the land in order to upgrade it. Basically, they're going to have to put a pole in his field. And this farmer's like, I don't, you know, I don't want you to just, it's going to take up part of my land. I'm going to have to lose some of my crop every year. You're going to put this pole in my field without giving me anything. Um, and basically, again, this is useful for the fact that this village had really strong uh, associations meant that, you know, the local, you know, party cadre. So I talked to the party secretary of this village who's, you know, exasperated by this guy who wouldn't move off his land or wouldn't give up, you know, this piece of land for this, uh, this electrical pole that was going to benefit everybody in the village. You know, he told me like, well, what did I do? I went to basically his uncle, um, and uh, and in the, in the clan and in the lineage group, and told him to to put some pressure on this guy to to do it. Um, and basically, because this elder came to him, it was really hard for him socially. It was really hard for him to refuse without you know being well. Not he wouldn't have been ostracized necessarily from the village, but he would have been. It would have looked bad. Um, so uh, so he did end up end up moving off of his land. Um, so these norms again of deference to and respect for elders, you know, there's nothing inherently bad about this, this set of norms at all. But the point I'm making in the book is that um, it's useful um, if for the state for implementing policy. That's interesting, because I think what the case studies demonstrate is this, this system of political control is pretty effective. But then at the same time, there are real limits to political control in this sort of coercive way. So I wonder if you can talk a bit now about what the, you see as the key challenges then to the Communist Party's system of political control that happens in this sort of non-repressive, non-violent, coercive system. Yeah, well, I mean, so a couple of things. Well, first, you know, I don't want to diminish the fact that there is a repressive, coercive, violent dimension mm-hmm. to political control in 
China and authoritarian systems. I mean, I think you know the obvious uh, case that's important to talk about here is Xinjiang, where uh, the way that political control is exercised is quite coercive. You know, it's through uh, camps, intense surveillance, jailing people, um, you know, and uh, systematic human rights abuses. So, you know, I don't want to suggest that all political control all the time in China and authoritarian systems is is non-coercive because it is. It is repressive and you have cases like Xinjiang where um, there are human rights violations that are happening and extraordinary amounts of repression. I do think, so, you know, with that important caveat, you know, most of the time in authoritarian systems like China, that's not how the state is operating. And I think, uh, you know, you can look at you know, ebbs and flows and ups and downs of how, uh, what the tools of political control that states use are. But uh, one set of things that I think is, is always in the kind of quiver of authoritarian states are these more informal, less coercive sets of tools for political control that often uh, that people in the past have paid less attention to. Um, so, you know, getting back to this question of what are, what are the challenges? I just, I'll like highlight two of them. The first is, um, that, you know, these strategies of political control, they can become, um, in some cases less effective over time. And they are, uh, they're, they're, they're flexible, uh, which means that they might not have the rigidity that uh, that some leaders want. Um, so, what what do I mean by that? Well, first, uh, when it comes to some of these tactics of political control, I think about like cultivating, um, you know, cultivating local elites or uh, trying to co-opt the leaders of lineage groups in order to do things like requisition land. Um, well, if you do this in um, the context of what you could think of as kind of repeated interaction, like then a game theorist might talk about a repeated game. Uh, it, it does create incentives for everybody to sort of behave themselves over the long run. So like if I'm asking you to pay your taxes, to pay fees to the state, to maybe give some of your land to the state, you know, you, uh, you know, you're not going to keep doing that unless you're getting something in, uh, in return. There can be a problem though, if, you move from this kind of repeated interaction to what you could think of as a more one kind of a one shot game, which does give people incentives uh, to, uh, to cheat. And so the kind of extraordinary wealth generation that happens and, and the extraordinary corruption that happened in China, especially at the end of the Hu Jintao, beginning of the Xi Jinping era, um, created incentives for local officials to really, you know, treat their position uh, in the local government as an ATM. Uh, and this means that, you know, if they're doing things like trying to requisition land and get people off it and using these social organizations to do it, it can really erode the credibility and social fabric of, of villages, um, especially in rural China, um, using using these more informal strategies. It can really erode social ties. Um, so it's not something that, uh, you know, that, that all states can kind of do all the time. Um, I, mean, this, I think the second big picture... Um, uh, limit or change that happens over time is I do think there have been uh, changes over time in, in the degree to which the state uses uh, less 
uh, I suppose, formal uh, strategies like cultivating social groups and uh, cultivating, you know, even NGOs as a way to help the state provide services and governance and control society and more formal, uh, more to a certain extent, course of strategies like the strategy of infiltration, like like using party organizations, neighborhood committees uh, to try to implement policy. So I think you've seen a shift between the, in the from the Hu Jintao era to the Xi Jinping era and how uh, the state views and uses local uh, civil society to govern. So I think in the Hu Jintao era, uh, there was uh, more of an emphasis on the strategies of kind of cultivation, co-optation, creating and allowing, um, in many cases, uh, social groups to thrive and to organize themselves, at least to the degree that they help the state govern and provide services. Um, and whether it was, uh, you know, at the local level in, in rural China, things like lineage and kinship associations, music groups, or in urban China, things like uh, labor NGOs. Um, you know, and there was some room in the, in, in the Hujan Tower for these organizations uh, to exist, to organize people. Um, but, you know, they existed so long as they were useful for the state uh, to make society more kind of legible to control society to provide services now in the xi jinping era i think there's been this turn towards more towards you know the harder tools of repression especially in places like xinjiang but also in in a lot of society the tool uh using infiltration especially party cells uh residence committees in urban china the grid management system which is a policing system uh of uh, you know where cities are literally divided into kind of grids um and in rural China, uh, uh, village or small groups, uh, which is something you see really vividly happening with the uh, coronavirus response um, on, you know, maybe the kind of positive side where, uh, you know, the, the government under, under C really relied on residence committees uh, to monitor and enforce quarantines uh, a year ago um, in February, March of 2020, it was these uh, urban neighborhood committees, these residence committees that were, you know, checking people in, taking temperatures and enforcing the quarantines. Um, and, you know, formal party organizations too, like party cells in uh, firms have also become increasingly important. So while, you know, Xi Jinping, under Xi Jinping, the Communist Party has done a lot to try to shut down uh, civil society groups that are allowed to exist in the Hujin Tower. So you've seen this kind of rebalancing, this move towards infiltration over uh, through these kind of more easy directly to control uh, organizations instead of cultivation. But I think the downside to that for the uh, Communist Party is it's less flexible um, and in a sense more brittle than uh, the way that the Communist Party governed under Hujin Tower. That was a long-winded answer. No, no, it's good. It's good. It's really interesting. Um, I guess this is a good point to pick up. Um, you mentioned before the ways that you sort of measure the effectiveness of these tools of coercive social control or, or political control, you could say. Um, so you talk about land, the systems of land expropriation, family planning, uh, planning and protest. So I'm wondering if you can talk to each of these points about you know, um, how this plays out through these systems of political control, these um, coercive systems, firstly about land expropriation, 
um, and then perhaps the impact of family planning policies over the past 40 years, um, and then the scope for protest in Chinese villages um, and whether or not they're curbed, if at all, especially in terms of, you know, how you measure um, the effectiveness of this sort of political coercion in um, in rural China. Yeah, so when it first, I mean, it's, I want to tackle each of those, I guess, um, <laughs> one by one. Um, so when it comes to the to land requisitions, I mean, I think you know, land rights have really been at the center of politics in China since the early 1900s. Um, you know, I think, you know, Sonia, it was Sonia Tsen who recognized that basically, you know, whoever solves the land problem will, yeah, for the Chinese, uh, for Chinese farmers, for the Chinese peasantry, will have essentially one China. Um, and Sun Yat-sen was, uh, was right, of course, you know, it was, um, it was Mao and the CCP that came to power partly in the back of a rural peasant-led revolution promising land redistribution, which, of course, the Communist Party did in the early 1950s, you know, taking land away from landlords, you know, often violently or probably, you know, over, probably over a million people, uh, you know, dead in that 1950 to 1953 period. Um, and, uh, you know, redistributed land uh, to, uh, to farmers, to poor farmers, um, and ultimately equalized landholdings. Uh, so you have this first great redistribution of land in the early 1950s. And, uh, you know, the system of collective agriculture that the CCP devised under Mao was, of course, a gigantic failure in equalizing livelihood, making people's lives better, making people prosperous and wealthy. The changes to the political system that happened uh, you know, at the very tail end of the Mao era and during the uh, beginning of the Deng era uh, to give responsibility back to households to be able to cultivate their land rather than to farm in collectives um, was really the engine that started uh, this great, you know, eradication of poverty and rise to wealth of the Chinese political system. But this, the, the next kind of great land redistribution uh, started really happening in the late 90s, early 2000s, when uh, the, the, you know, farmers in China today don't have individual full, in the Western sense, property rights to land. Farmers can't sell their lands. Um, they can rent it out, but you can't sell it. Um, instead, in order to sell lands, land has to be essentially uh, confiscated requisitions by local governments. Uh, and so what does this mean? Well, this kind of curious, strange legacy of the socialist period means that in order for land development to happen or for urbanization to happen or for industrialization to happen, uh, you often have uh, local governments essentially requisitioning land from farmers um, for compensating farmers on average significantly less than it's worth uh, and then and then developing the land. So the good thing that you get from this is development, urbanization, and you know, wealth creation taking people out of poverty. The bad thing is that ultimately this is happening uh, on, on balance on the back of farmers. You know, it's not always, it's not always bad, but you know, it's the survey data I have in the book shows um, from nationally representative surveys, on average, farmers are getting a kind of bad deal from this, even if on balance, maybe it's good for China, it's not good for these farmers. Um, and so the question then is how to 
How do these local governments move farmers off their land for significantly less than it's worth? How are they essentially reversing this great triumph of the Chinese Communist Party of the 1950s of equalizing land holdings in what's a, essentially a regressive redistribution of land from uh, relatively poor uh, smallholding farmers to uh, now, you know, the land's being given to, to developers. Um, and certainly at, at the end of the Hu Jintao era, uh, you know, these officials making, you know, gobs of money uh, from, from doing this. Um, so that's the kind of, that's one, that's the reason why land requisition is important. And, and, and again, you know, going back, you know, how is this accomplished partly through these social groups, uh, you know, whether it's, um, you know, Xi Jinping using lineage networks to try to push people off land for a dam, or it's, uh, you know, an official in, uh, in Guangdong, uh, uh, using um, the prestige that they've earned through uh, creating these uh, like dance troops uh, to try to uh, squeeze people off their land. Um, it's a kind of, you know, a central question for understanding uh, the livelihood of, of farmers and people in China. You know, the second question about, um, about uh, family planning policy, you know, this is, again, was, a major objective of the Chinese Communist Party, you know, starting really in the seventies, really before the one-child policy was promulgated. You know, under Mao, there's the, the was it the later, later, longer, fewer campaign where they're trying to encourage um, lower fertility rates. This really took off, of course, in the Deng era. There's a big debate in demography, which you know, I'm not a demographer, so I can't um, speak to this as an expert about you know what's the actual kind of causal effect of the one-child policy on preventing births you know it's not zero but it's also probably not um probably didn't reduce fertility by hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of millions because you know as countries get wealthy wealthier as china has fertility naturally declines anyway um even the absence of these kinds of policy interventions but in rural china the one child policy was generally especially compared to urban china relatively less popular um and getting people to comply with it, and again in rural China, was relatively difficult. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, the question for village officials was, how could you actually monitor uh, households and ensure compliance with this pretty difficult to uh, to enforce policy? And again, you know, the argument the argument of the book is like a lot of these groups um, are are useful for or were useful when policy was still strongly in effect. Uh, for monitoring people at the local level. Right. Um, and so I guess bringing these points together, I'm wondering with these sort of regressive redistribution of land policies and, you know, relatively unpopular one-child policies in rural areas, can you tell me, um, and then there's also this tamping down on protests that you write about as well in the book, can you tell me a bit more about how a strong civil society actually strengthens state capacity in these realms to sort of get these policies done. Yeah. Um, so the, I guess, so, so the kind of core, the core argument here of, mm-hmm. of the book is in order to get these, uh, to get these policies done, you know, it's useful to have uh, local officials, especially at the grassroots at this kind of, interface between state and society, basically where the government or the state needs society. Uh, governments need, you know, one, information, and two, uh, they need uh, kind of 
uh, uh, bureaucrats, officials at the local level who are able to implement policy and actually and actually get things done. Um, so, of course, it's important to understand what's happening in places like Beijing, but it's also, um, uh, you know, at what happens at the grassroots, whether it's in a village in rural China or at the neighborhood level. That's kind of, in many ways, like the substance of, of governance. So um, these social groups are useful for making society more legible. In other words, making it easier for officials to understand and kind of count where people are and understand what their preferences are. Um, they're also useful for, and uh, they're useful for you know, cultivating norms uh, that are useful for the state, especially norms of deference to authority and elders. Uh, they're also uh, useful in a pretty direct way when it comes to these infiltrating organizations like neighborhood uh, committees uh, for just having the kind of arms and ears uh, uh, at the local level uh, to uh, to implement policy and to you know, monitor people and tell people what needs to be done. Right. And I'm not so, sure if that answered. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's fine. It's, it, it actually does. Um, because you also write the flip side of informal control is that communities which lack song, strong social organisations maintain the possibility to mount spontaneously leaderless resistance. So I'm wondering if you can expand on this a little bit. Yeah, so this is something that we saw on the international stage with the protests in, in Hong Kong and in uh, Spain, uh, which is, you know, we saw you know, protests happening that were, you know, generally leaderless. You know, there weren't single, clear, identifiable groups that were organizing these protests or or leaders, uh, partly out of necessity because uh, you know, they're trying to evade the police, evade the state. Um, and, uh, you know, having kind of learned lessons from prior protests where leaders had been, uh, had been arrested, you know, so in places like Hong Kong and, uh, the protests that happened in Catalan, you know, people organizing through you know, social media using, you know, Telegram and other signal of these other apps, uh, to try to, to, to organize without organizations, um, which is, it seems kind of paradoxical, but um, has you know allowed these groups to thrive in or, you know in a relatively decentralized way that was hard uh, for for the state to stop. And then one of the interesting things is that I found in my research, you know, this book was written uh, well before the, the protests in Hong Kong or Catalonia and, and came out. Um, uh, you know, I put the book to bed. Uh, sent it to the publisher before the protests even started. Um, but, you know, this is something that I had observed in rural China years before uh, these protests, really kind of similar tactics where, you know, it helped groups to not have these groups because it made it harder for to not have uh, civil society, strong civil society organizations, because it just made it marginally a little bit harder for officials to... Uh, figure out what was happening in local society. Because if you have, even you know, at the village level, if you have village officials who are kind of, in a sense, insulated from local society, you know, maybe they're spending time at uh, you know the local social club playing, uh, you know, cards or whatever, um, playing mahjong instead of, uh, uh, and don't necessarily have deep roots in village society. They might not be aware of uh, who's discontented about a particular land deal. They might not be aware of, uh, you know, 
you know, um, Mr. and Ms. Wong who were uh, organizing, uh, you know, a kind of like pop-up protest against uh, a planned, you know, plastic factory that would, will be built on, you know, village land for no compensation to villagers. Um, you know, if, if you if you lack these connections to village society, it's harder to monitor and control it. So, you know, one of the things I saw in the, you know, years before these protests in Hong Kong or Catalonia is, is villagers using similar tactics, doing things like trying to organize quasi-anonymously, using pretty analog sometimes tactics like uh, um, going and, you know, this is in, in the days before ubiquitous surveillance, you know, to postering the uh, the village to say, you know, hey, we're all, well, let's all meet at, um, you know, such and such a time at the village square to protest this land requisition. Um, and then you get almost a kind of like flash mob that appears um, through this pretty, uh, this pretty analog technique of organization. Um, and so, yeah, that's one of the, to me, the surprising things is like one of the uh, most effective ways to organize was to have this kind of you know, leaderless protest. Mm, and that's really interesting. Um, so just building on, um, you touched on this before about co-optation. So in addition to cultivating civil society, one of the key themes and key mechanisms that you your research shows is that co-optation is relatively effective at you know promoting a degree of political control. Can you talk a little bit about how how co-optation operates in China's rural villages, um, and what the incentives are for compliance? Yeah. So in um, in rural China, you know, you think about. Uh, you know, co-optation in general is a strategy that a lot of authoritarian regimes use in order to try to um, uh, uh, govern society. Co-opting local notables is uh, pretty useful for, for authoritarian regimes from, you know, Egypt to, uh, to China. So in rural China, this could often mean doing things like identifying the leaders of, uh, you know, lineage groups, for example, would be... Um, you know, important uh, local leaders who a lot of pres- who have a lot of prestige and authority within their group. So some lineage groups are quite organized and have you know a single person who's their identifiable kind of lineage group head. Often this is you know, they're often, uh, generally men um, in the uh, relatively patriarchal society uh, of you know places in say eastern eastern Guangdong. Um, you know not always, but often men um, who you know. Are you know, seen as someone who's really capable and uh, effective within their lineage group. So these lineage kind of chiefs, these lineage heads, um, often become a kind of point person for uh, local officials who want to implement policy. Um, so you know, you know, talking to village officials, you want to you know requisition land for a new road project. What do you do? Well, the first thing that you need to do is go to one of these uh, lineage heads to try to get them on board. Um, and because then they'll use their own prestige within the lineage group to, uh, to try to uh, uh, get people to comply with the policy. So if you have one of these lineage group heads who is outside of the state and can essentially act as a broker or go between, between the state and the lineage group, that can be good for the lineage group in that um, in this one person can help to organize people, help to solve the collective uh, the collective action problem that's inherent in um, you know, trying to act together as a group and make sure that people aren't uh, people aren't selfish. Um, 
and can kind of essentially be a bulwark in a sense against the state. However, if these lineage group heads have uh, been co-opted uh, by the local state, either by you know maybe becoming a member of the village government, becoming a member of the village committee, becoming a member of the village communist party branch, uh, this can actually be tremendously useful. Like they, it can then create incentives for these uh, lineage heads to act in ways that maybe you know on balance, uh, uh, you know, it shifts their incentives towards. Um, Towards taking uh, actions that benefits the state and the party um, a little bit more than if they weren't a member of these organizations, you know, because if you're on the village committee, you know, whether it's maybe uh, some you know, corruption or financial advantage you might get from, say, a, a land deal, or if you're a party member, just party discipline um, can encourage you to, you know, help the party to to implement policy if you're not uh, necessarily a uh, engaging in the corruption. Um, so at the very local grassroots level, the strategy of co-optation can be quite useful. And then the final area of political coercion you write about is um, infiltration. So you, you have a chapter on infiltration. And in this chapter, you focus on, the stra- on its strategy, where you write, networks of grassroots informants, each of them in charge of a local cell, can substitute the tra- strategy of using non-state groups to govern. I'm wondering if you can talk more about how infiltration of civil society groups work and why it would be used as a substitute for cultivating civil society and co-optation. Yeah, so this is another strategy that's that's used by authoritarian states outside of China. It's also been used by states uh, in China before the the PRC. Um, So the idea behind infiltration is you have states that create essentially these parastate groups that, um, like neighborhood committees, villager small groups, you know, party cells at the local level that are used, in other words, in, uh, that, that ask individuals to essentially hold other individuals within their social group accountable for things that the state wants. So you could look back through Chinese history to uh, the Baojia system um, that, you know, set up in China from, uh, that was effective in China from, you know, the Song Dynasty onwards uh these kind of like mutual responsibility systems that ask people um in imperial china to police their neighbors report their neighbors collect revenue from the state um by you know under the baojia system or the lijia system you'd have groups of 10 or 100 households um where you'd have one household that would rotate over time uh who would be responsible for ensuring um you know compliance with the law and for uh, helping to collect revenue um, you know, these, that kind of older system now, you know, there's a kind of echo in it, uh, in the, you know, neighborhood committees in, uh, urban China, the residence committees that are, uh, responsible for, um, you know, implementing policy and for monitoring people at the local level. So, you know, earlier I was talking about the, um, you know, coronavirus, implementing the coronavirus, uh, restrictions, uh, which was, you know, something with that had, you know, kind of public goods benefits, but of course was also a political control function of the state, the ability to control society and implement these quarantines is, is certainly an example of political control. Um, you know, the strategy of infiltration is also useful for doing things like enforcing the one-child policy. So these neighborhood committees, residence committees are um, essential for uh, monitoring people 
in ensuring compliance with the one-child policy. So if you have someone who's kind of the neighborhood minder who's asked to report to you know the neighborhood village party secretary um, about you know who's who's might which families might be expecting or not, and are they you know are they having a child who's over uh, the the birth quota? Um, you know these institutions are really useful for the state um, in uh, uh, you know monitoring and controlling society. And as I mentioned before, you know, I think you've seen the shifts in the who, from the who era to the she era, and focusing more on uh, a strategy of infiltration, focusing more on using the party and parastate organizations like neighborhood committees to implement policy, and a little bit less on cultivating, subverting, co-opting civil society. Hmm. And then, bringing all of these points together, in the conclusion, you raise a really interesting question by your research, um, you ask how durable is informal repression as a tool of control? So how durable do you think it is? I think it's quite durable. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that even though this, even though um, all authoritarian governments, all states, even non, even democratic governments, we rely on different methods of political control uh, over, over time. I don't, I think it's, 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 in a sense, inescapable for uh, governments to, at least to some extent, to rely on these less formal methods of political control. Um, There's a quote from Hannah Arendt that I mentioned in the book that, uh, you know, where force is used, authority itself has failed. Um, So anytime states have to rely rely on coercion for for political control, on violent coercion for political control, it usually means that these other tools of political control to get people to comply with the state in a kind of quasi-voluntary way have failed. Uh, so I think that the Chinese state will, you know, continue to use these even if um, you know, repression, uh, even if this, even if society continues to be relatively closed as it is under Xi Jinping, even if it's relying more on infiltration, less on uh, cultivating and subverting civil society. Um, the state essentially can't escape from using it. And you see Xi Jinping talking a lot about things like the Feng Chao experience, which are basically, um, you know, using uh, society to control itself through, you know, mobilizing people at the local level to monitor each other and ensure compliance with the state. So you're not going to see this. You're not going to see this go away. Um, So I think in the long run, it's, it's a pretty durable strategy. Yeah, and in that space, you quote sociologist Fei Xiaotong, who in 1947 wrote, China is above all a rural society. So bringing all of your research together, um, there were so many great uh, qualitative studies and surveys. I'm interested to know what are the implications of this rise in this rural society, especially with regards to China's rise in the world? Yeah, well, I love, first of all, I love talking about Fei Xiaotong. Like, Xiang Zhu Zhongguo is like one of my favorite. Uh, one of my favorite books. Definitely recommend. There's a good um, a Chinese version, relatively accessible even to a non-native speaker like me. But the there's also a great translation by at the University of California Press. Um, and yeah, so China is, is you know so so Fei wrote that China China is above all a rural society. Not true now, right? Like this classic book yeah. of sociology is about uh, China. Um, you know, back in the you know. True in the pre-Mao era and even true through the 1980s, but not uh, not today anymore. But I think the, the interesting thing to me about rural society as a political scientist um, is 
I think it lays bare in a lot of ways um, as a, as a researcher and someone who wants to try to understand society, like seeing this kind of society in miniature, in like rural. And I also come from uh, from Vermont, from like a pretty rural town in the United States. But you can kind of see how society works in these in a kind of miniature way, in a way that's kind of easy to understand, in a way that's but it's in a way that's kind of harder to understand at um, at uh, at the national level. So I just love talking and thinking about uh, rural society, partly for that reason. Um, but okay, well, back to your question about like what are the implications of this for uh, for China's rise in the world? Well, even though China is no longer primarily a rural society, uh, it's all of China is connected to rural China in ways that are interesting and unusual, partly because of this, you know, the legacy of the socialist system where people are still tied to their land and their land rights, um, you know, and partly because, you know, migration means that in the hukou system, the residency system uh, that characterizes China means that uh, people are still, you know, their citizenship is tied to their, uh, to their rural village. So in a way it's kind of, for, for people in China, it's kind of inescapable. Um, and so I think it's important, still remains important substantively to understand rural China today, in addition to whatever kind of general lessons for governance that might have. Um, and, and the other reason that rural China is important is, uh, you know, if, if you want to understand poverty eradication, which is one of the most important lessons of China, like you can't, you have to understand what's happening in rural China and what um, people in rural China have done uh, and what's happened uh uh, and what's happened in rural China. So there are, you know, incredible, amazing parts of the story, uh, poverty eradication. Um, and one of, the, one of them, of course, is just understanding how did rural China develop. But the other piece of that is understanding the kind of, in a sense, more political, less economic story of it, which is, you know, how did the state actually get things done, which is really hard for developing states. So understanding political control in rural China, um, I think, is important for governments around the world. Mm, that's really interesting. I really, um, I really like that way you describe it and think about it as rural society being sort of society in miniature. Um, it's it's fascinating. Um, so you've said that you know you think this is fairly durable, and that you know we understand rural China to understand more. It's sort of um, indicative of what's going on more broadly. So then, bringing everything together, you know, in your conclusion, you write about you know, what might be likely to be the best check on authoritarian power. So then what do you think is likely to be the best check on authoritarian power? I, well, you know, as I write about in the book, I mean, I think mm-hmm. um, the, at the very end of the book, you know, it, it partly is the ability to have some kind of uh, social organization that's free from state power, uh, which you know, in rural China has meant In in order for farmers to protect their rights, you know, protect their land rights, often this has meant organizing and protesting against the local state, right? Not not protesting against uh, Communist Party rule, not protesting against the national government, but protesting against you know corrupt local officials who are you know requisitioning land without giving a lot of money to people. you know, protesting against local officials who overstep the bounds when trying to enforce family planning policy. In order to do that, I think you need really vigorous protests and opposition. Of course, that's hard in an authoritarian system. I argue that it's actually, in a surprising way, sometimes easier without uh, social organizations, the kinds of social organizations in the West we might associate with a robust civil society with, uh, you know, 
political accountability um, are uh, less obviously useful in authoritarian contexts. So the best check against authoritarian power, you know, I argue in the book is protest, um, is collective action and holding officials accountable. How do you get there? Well, there's no one size fits all uh, answer to that question. But I think, you know, as you've seen from you know, rural China, as I read about my book, so Hong Kong and, and, and uh, elsewhere, uh, it's often places that are uh, uh, able to you know, use this tactic of leaderless protests that are um, best, best able to organize. Mm, and actually, I must say that your book is really interesting reading in this time um, in the, on this topic of protest and sort of um, resistance against authoritarian power. It's very applicable to these times, I should say. Now, Dan, I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, I'm wondering if you can tell me what you're working on now. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks so thanks so much for those kind those kind words. So, um, what am I working on now? I'm working on my next book, um, which is uh, you know. So this book was about the kind of non-violent, non-coercive tools of uh, used by the Chinese state in rural China, um, which of course made me wonder about the opposite, the things I didn't write about in this book, which is understanding the role of political violence in China over time. So my next book project. Uh, and in you know, my book projects based on this like in-depth qualitative field research, a lot of kind of interview research, um, which meant that it was kind of bound in time to the end of the Hujin Tower and into the Xi Jinping era, um, you know, that, that kind of decade. Um, so now my next project is looking at the role of political violence, the role of uh, the military and, and, uh, and elite politics in China, um, and taking a kind of more historical look, trying to understand how, uh, you know, two holds the power of the gun has shaped Chinese politics from 1911 to now. So it's a very different kind of project than this, than this last one. Well, when you get done, you'll have to, um, we'll have to have you back on the show because that also sounds really interesting. And I think it will sort of complement your work um, by sort of building the, pushing the literature in a different direction. Um, yeah. So definitely we'll have you back. Um, it sounds super interesting. Thanks um, so much, Jane. I really appreciate you having me on here. This is a lot of fun. Oh, it's, it's been great. Um, so just to sum it all up, I'm Jane Richards and I've been speaking with Daniel Mattingly about his book, The Art of Political Control in China. Uh, Dan Mattingly, thank you for your time. Thank you.